Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You want to do our low version of "Here We Come a Wassling" for Arthur? <laughs> Here we come a wassling, a wassling, a wassling. Here we come a wassling, a wassling, a wassling. Here we come a wassling, a wassling, a wassling. Here we come a wassling, a wassling, a wassling. Here we come a. You should got you should clip that. That's in the public domain. That's gold. So, that happened. This week, the Senate's report on CIA torture was released into the wild, and while the redactions were thick, it nevertheless read as a thoroughgoing chronicle of depravity and incompetence that will, at the very least, ruin hummus forever. Meanwhile, last week we introduced you to the Cromnibus, rhymes with ominous, the lame duck budget bill that needed to be passed to keep the government working. This week, we'll break down the Wall Street poison pill that came along with it, and who wanted who to swallow it. And speaking of the Cromnibus, the bill also contained language that may scuttle the efforts of the District of Columbia to legalize weed. We will yell about this. I'm Jason Lincolns with the Huffington Post's Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. Support for So That Happened has come from a male chimp. His name is Henry. He's very well intended, but we'd sort of like some zoo to come take him off our hands now. Um, okay, so joining me today is Zach Carter, as per usual. Hello. And we are also joined by Huffington Post National Security Reporter, Allie Watkins. Hello. And Allie, your presence here basically means we're going to be talking in some way, shape, or form about human depravity (laughs) and the CIA torture report, which came out this week. uh, And I didn't think it was possible to continue to be shocked by what the CIA did to people, but... They did everything short of human centipeding uh, detainees. Take us through this. Yeah, and rectal feeding gets pretty close to that on right? the gross I mean, scale. Forced what, rectal feeding, let's yeah. be clear. How do you become like a rectal rehydration guy? I, it's like, we whole... need a new way to get information out of people. I know a guy. He's way into Who this thing. He guy? tosses yeah. a hummus salad and shoves it up people's... <sighs> yeah. Okay, well, take us through it. So, um... Uh, there's so many different components to this thing to begin with. You know, I'm I haven't even really carefully combed through half of this thing yet. Um, but even in the first few pages, we have these terrible, terrible things. I mean, rectal feeding is one, which I think is was probably built to be one of the. You know, that's what everyone's latching onto right now. Right. But just the way that these people were treated, and it. Uh, I said yesterday, it, it really speaks to the way the report was written. That it's kind. I think it's kind of meant to put a reader there that, you know, you see these guys getting dragged down the hallways and kicked and slapped and punched and well, there's a real mise en scene in this there, report. There really is. And, you know, this this image of, of people just hanging with their hands above their heads, like, to, uh, attached to these bars and little details, like just the tips of their toes touching the ground, like, that just makes you squirm when you think about that. For days on end, people being hung there and left there. 
Um, so the gruesome details, I think, are one part of this, which everybody's still kind of feeding off of, which is, is important in and of itself, you know? Um, to me, what's really standing out to this is the mismanagement and, and some of these systemic issues that mm. the report kind of pulls out. Um, and looking at how much internal criticism was ignored and how many unqualified officers were stuck in these detention sites. Um, that's that's disturbing to see the Senate kind of line up, you know, the CIA was given a warning here not to promote this guy. The next section, oh, hey, he's promoted. Or the agency was given a, a, a warning from a supervisory officer, hey, don't send this guy to detention site blue. It's a bad idea. And then the next graph is, <laughs> they do it. hey, this guy just arrived at detention site blue. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, I was really stunned by that. I mean, the, the gruesome details were pretty shocking. But, uh, you know, they, they tortured a guy to death. I mean, he basically – one of the detainees freezes to death basically – um, and then the the CIA agent one or CIA official one who is you know not named he's given anonymity in the report he isn't fired he isn't like prosecuted he is given a twenty five hundred dollar bonus yeah that was nuts I, I just thought that was I mean even supervillains know that you shouldn't torture people to death because they can't talk after they're dead I mean it's just even even within the the, the twisted like logic of the program it doesn't make any sense it just it's just <laughs> horrifying. That's another – when you bring up the twisted logic uh, of the program and kind of how this was shaped, it's interesting to me. I was reading yesterday. You know, there were warnings sent to agency headquarters, don't keep torturing this guy because he's going to think it doesn't matter. Like I can give them the right information. I can give them the wrong right. information. I'm getting waterboarded either way. So there were warnings sent up saying stop. He's cooperating or he's giving us information. This isn't working. You shouldn't do this. And someone – is still sending, you know, do it again, do it again, do it again. Make sure he doesn't have any more information to give us. So, yeah, that, that twisted logic is fascinating, really. The casualness. There's one There's one uh, account in the report where a guy describes, like, uh, sending an email about the last waterboarding session, and he signs off going, well, I'm going back to another waterboarding session. And it's, like, it's like so casual. It sounds like a like going back to war, like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll check back in a little bit. Right. Like stepping in. My show's and, coming back on. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Pick up some chicken on the way home, babe. This yeah. Is, <laughs> another thing that stood out to me, um, this is the second long-ass thing I've read, the first being uh, that Apuzzo Goldman book, uh, Enemies Within, where the FBI comes off way more competent than the people they're matched against, in this case, the CIA. We have inst- multiple instances in this report of, of FBI conducting fruitful interrogations with detainees, uh, getting information out of ha- high-value targets, doing it in a way that doesn't conflict with anyone's idea of like a moral obs- what a moral obscenity is. And then the CIA come in, comes in, and and then scoops them up, and the FBI agents are, are left wondering what the heck they were doing wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that it it, it 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 was almost like some kind of like weird like territorial pissing competition between these two agencies, uh, and the CIA just couldn't accept the fact that another agency was getting productive work out of the out of these detainees. Oh, totally. It's it almost I'm. It plays into every stereotype you think of with the CIA that, you know, some, something's going OK. And then like a bull in a china shop, they <laughs> they bust in there and say – and I'm not necessarily saying that's the right impression or the wrong impression. It's the impression this report gives. Um, you know, there was a point somewhere in this process where the FBI stood up and said it's time for us to leave the room. You know, whenever these enhanced interrogation techniques, whenever the conversation started happening – 
there was a point where someone at the or at the the bureau said, "This isn't our place anymore. We need to leave." So there there is some weird the back channels that were happening in the intelligence community through this whole thing is fascinating, and I think that that's the biggest chunk that I am missing in this in this report. Um, not to get onto a tangent or anything. That's fine. But, I mean, something that I tried to bring up yesterday talking to people. So this is this is a really important report in and of itself, the Intelligence Committee. There's another report, the SASC report, the Armed Services Committee report mm. that came out in 2008. And when you kind of match the two of them up, there are still some really big holes in this whole story. The, the Intelligence Committee report focuses solely on the agency, and it focuses mostly on the on-the-ground stuff happening in the agency, the terrible things in the detention sites, the terrible things that happen here, here, and here. Um, the SASC report focuses obviously on the Defense Department, right. but the SASC report hints at all the back channels that happened during this from September 2001 to roughly February 2002 when the, me- the DOJ memos first started coming out. And that chunk of time where... People started asking about um, this this SEER school where people where U.S. military is sent to learn how to withstand torture. You know, the Defense Department started making inquiries to this SEER school of like, hey, what is this? Could we use it? Let's start talking to psychologists. Hmm. Let's start talking to people. So there were all these back channel communications happening. And in that period from September 2001 to February 2002, whatever it was, there were warnings that, that people said, don't use SEER. Don't start looking at these techniques. You can't reverse engineer them. That's not their purpose. And those warnings were consistently ignored by DOD. You know, there were people in Washington who said... But just to be clear, SEER is where we sent uh, people yes. who... Soldiers to get trained in how to resist being waterboarded, being yeah. tortured, that kind of thing. It's essentially built as a resistance mechanism, not an interrogation mechanism. And when, when we say resistance, do we mean resistance to things that people that enemies of the United States have used against American soldiers in the past. Yes. Like torture and, techniques. Yeah, and Keep in mind that everyone participating in the Sears school did so knowing that the people running the Sears school weren't literally going to kill them. Yeah. And weren't interrogating them. And we're, yeah, weren't interrogating them. I mean, yeah. They weren't mm-hmm. trained interrogators running the Sears school. Um, and the committee also points out that the techniques used in the Sears school are back from like, I think it was like communist Korea or something. Like mm-hmm. some, they, they got these from like Cold War era techniques. Um, so, there's a big chunk of time there that's really important that is missing from both of these reports about Sears School and about DOD and about the mismanagement. So, and who, know, which people in power were making decisions? Yes, yeah, who in Washington said to DOD uh, legal counsel, "No, forget it. We're still going to use the Sears School and the whole psychologist thing." Architects of this program that came out yesterday in that big interview. Um, I know that's kind of a tangent, but it's something that I don't think people are really talking about because they are so distracted with the, this is all the crazy stuff the CIA did in their detention sites. Well, there's a lot of stuff that led up to the CIA even getting a detention site. Well, and I think that's a really good point, though, because it gets to one of the sort of, you know, other controversies about this report, and, and that is, you know, the controversy surrounding accountability. Uh, David Frum yesterday was was tweeting that, you know, Senate Democrats had just handed, uh, you know, in, international investigators a, a big gift if they wanted to prosecute Americans uh, for for war crimes, essentially. And he, David Frum seemed to seem to think that this was a very bad thing. Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to look at these these reports <laughs> and talk about, you know, sexual the the, the, the the, the forced rectal feeding, that sounds a lot like sexual assault to me. Are I we mean, not trying, to, a guy to death, are we not trying to extradite Roman Polanski? Right. 
I mean, there, there, you just you can see you can see there's 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 a clear concern on the part of, of people who were affiliated with the Bush administration at this period of time that, that there there actually may be some accountability consequences, even if they don't come from the Obama administration itself. And there already was an indictment of um, at the International Criminal Court of Bush and Cheney and, and the whole crew. Um, obviously, they were never extradited. But mm-hmm. so I think those wheels, I don't know that they'll ever get traction, um, but that is an interesting question, you know, accountability wise. How do you read a report like that and then sit back and say, OK, look forward, not back? Hey, it was right. the 90s. You know, exactly. I, mean, I, I was reading something. I forget where it was some typical Beltway thing. And, and some reporter said, what are the problems, of course, with prosecuting people with the Obama administration, prosecuting people from the Bush era torture program is that it gives the future presidents the ability to potentially pr- prosecute people for the Obama administration. And they, they, they're they saying this as if it was like, well, it's quite a log jam. And I'm just like, well, no, that's the point. If they did something wrong, <laughs> prosecute them. But it's that's not like, exactly. Like, oh, shocks. That would be a shame if some other guy got prosecuted for doing the wrong thing. It's like, no, it's never shame. Yeah, that, but I think that's exactly <laughs> what this comes down to, that you, the notion of that is so ridiculous. <laughs> but when you look at how the Obama administration has danced around this report, and not just danced around this report, knowingly obfuscated with yeah. people, refused to give documents, mm-hmm. There's a reason for that, and it's probably so the next administration won't turn over their drone documents. You know yeah. what I mean? There's a precedent there of protecting the executive branch regardless of party, and that's that's concerning, and it's going to cost us the – no. I guess the – it's going to cost us the satisfaction of knowing we held people accountable for these things. Yeah. I don't want to call it satisfaction, but for lack of a better word. Well, I, I think it, it is really interesting that you, you bring up the drone program because that that is – when we talk about the, the – you know the, the Obama administration. I mean, a lot of times what people talk about is, is exactly what you just said: the looking forward, not back kind of line that Obama gave when he when he came into office. That there was a, a Justice Department investigation that's you know a, I think a lot of people view as just a kind of a, a whitewashing of, of of everything that went on r- related to torture. But um, it's not like there haven't been controversial executive branch actions from this president. I mean, the, with the drones, the drones have actually killed American citizens. Right. Uh, without, I mean, even even whatever you want to think about the legal you know, the legal status of killing people who are not American citizens, we know that that drones have targeted American citizens and killed them. That seems like a very controversial thing, something that's got very very shaky legal ground, both under international law and domestic law. And you know, you you can imagine why why a president would say, well, you know, I I don't really mind so much if someone like you know Michael Hyden yeah. goes to the Hague, but yeah. uh, but me, I I'm not psyched about that either. So have you guys gotten to the part about where the CIA tortures its own informants? I I have not. So they have these two guys, and they did terrible things to them, like two people, and all of the awful things that they explain about doing to the detainees in this report. And then they— people who are working with the CIA. Yes, people who have been informants for the CIA in the past, and they're putting them through all these terrible things, sleep deprivation for hours, days on end— and then they get a call from agency headquarters saying, hey, wait a minute. They were informants for us. You should not torture them anymore. And, and the worst part is that these people were not just informants in the past. They had been actively trying to contact CIA before they were picked up and tortured. Like they were actively trying to talk to CIA and say, hey, we have information for you. When the CIA grabbed them and said, get over here. And threw like, them in a detention center. Please let us tell you some facts, CIA. And the CIA is like, no, let's torture you. Yeah. <laughs> Just for fun. Like, how? I don't understand how that kind of miscommunication happens. Oh, that's rough. 
one last thing I want to put on the ledger is, okay, in the report, we learn about things. Uh, um, we, we learn that people who were who are, who are submitted to torture lied, gave false information, sent the CIA out on false leads. We learn that, perplexingly, the CIA, like, pre-gamed their torture by badly incapacitating detainees uh, prior to interrogations. They, they would subject them to all kinds of terrible sleep deprivations, sound torture, uh, stress positions, and, and, and literally put people not in the best frame of mind to be disclosing accurate information if they wanted to. We've read about people uh, who, uh, <laughs> who, who continue to be waterboarding long after uh, someone says, uh, stop waterboarding, it's no longer productive. And of course, the guy, the detainee who, who died of hypothermia on the floor of his cell. Mm-hmm. You put all this together, and you remember that this was supposed to be about protecting America. To me, it seems to represent a huge opportunity cost to protecting America. All this wasted time, all this wasted effort, and what do we have to show for it? I think that people. I think that one of the things that the, the, the people who defend this program tend to want to obscure is how little there was to show for all of this, all this effort. Uh, I mean, if you're a young analyst at the CIA, how do you reconcile all this stuff? I mean, I think. It's difficult because you see the biggest intelligence victory touted through all of this is OBL, is the the getting of Osama bin Laden. Right. And just I mean, when that's the only leg you have to stand on, you do have to ask. I mean, how effective was this? Um, so I, I think it's it's a it's so difficult to reconcile it. You know, especially if you are a young person at the agency, as, as we had been talking about. You know, someone who wasn't necessarily present for. The entire process. Right. You know, how do you take a step back and look at this in an objective fashion? And maybe not even so much from was it effective or not. Maybe a question of even if it was effective, was it worth what it cost us morally? You know, and I think that maybe the second is the more important question there, that even if torture is effective, why are we doing it? Like, why are we stooping to that level of torture? I mean, th- I think that's really important because you, you see that it, the immediate pushback that you're getting from all of all of the architects of this program is, that, well, hey, it worked. It mm-hmm. worked. And and it, I think the report casts a lot of doubt on that. I think it proves pretty conclusively, mm-hmm. in fact, that it did not work. But but who cares? I mean, doesn't aren't you making even even aside from, you know, whether this this ends up making the CIA's job harder by you know, diminishing our stature in, in, in global affairs? I mean, wh- why why do it at all? Why is that? Why, why do we just breeze by that question? I'll, I'll give one le- recommendation. If you're reading this torture report, don't go into it saying, I'm going to take a drink every time you see the sentence. These representations were inaccurate. Do a control F for <laughs> cry and for nude, and you will you will feel really sad. Yeah. Mm. All right. Thank you, Allie. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So last week we introduced everyone to something dreadful called the Cromnibus. And this week... Crom! We got crommed. Crom! Crom! Yeah, I'm surrounded by the... It's like Cromnibus. Uh, terrible. Uh, Arthur Delaney... Who wants to talk about this nonsense? I think this is all just up, utter, like, the worst. Why? I think it's a great topic. The crom. I'm not saying the topic is. A, I, I introduced the topic. The crom has descended on the city, enveloped us all like a thick fog. We are in the midst of the crom. It has passed the House of Representatives, but it's up in the air in the Senate. But it will probably pass there too. The, the crom, to be clear, crom is a god from Robert E. Howard's Conan universe.
or Conan universe. That's true. Uh, so just that's where Arthur and I are going with that. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, we'll be. We'll, we should also like just state a way in which we're constrained. We're we're actually recording this before the Senate takes up the vote, so we can't tell you. Oh, it passed. Right. It probably will, but just so you know. It's a question of what, on the Senate side. It's a question of whether someone decides to uh, to delay the vote. But it, it, once it, the vote happens, it will it will pass. Okay, so, so, so the crom is very controversial. Yes, and it was for very specific reasons. Even though it is an omnibus, it's really an all encompassing piece of legislation. And there were dozens of things for people, different people, to be upset about. It came down to Nancy Pelosi's objections. The the minority leader of the Democrats in the House of Representatives was mostly angry about the swaps push out. Zach, what the hell is that? Yeah, yeah. what's the swaps push so out? So I am going to, because modesty is not my strong suit, I'm just going to go ahead and remind everybody that I broke the story on the swaps push out being part of the talks uh, about Ooh. a week ago. Um, this prompted a whole lot of a whole lot of Damn. agitation oh, wow. on the Democratic side. Yeah. And uh, swaps push out. Zach? You're like the Beyonce of Swaps Push Out, basically. Uh, yeah, I get that a lot. I'm sure that a you lot. do. I, uh, so the the Swaps Push Out provision is it, it's a it's a rather actually important part of the 2010 Dodd Frank Wall Street reform law. Um, it, it's been sort of poo pooed by people as being a marginal provision lately, but I think that's wrong. And and when it, when it was uh, when it was unveiled during the Dodd Frank negotiations. Uh, Immediately, sort of systemic risk financial reform advocates said, this, you know, this and the Volcker Rule, which bans proprietary trading, trading for your own account instead of on behalf of, of your clients as a bank. These are the two, like, most important systemic risk provisions of, of the bill. And what it basically says is that if you want to engage in, like, risky trading, in particular, uncleared credit default swaps trading, these are, these are credit default swaps that you just trade in the dark that are customized with a, with, with, without any, any clearance through a central counterparty or an exchange or anything like that, you can do that. But you can't do it from your taxpayer-backed subsidiary. Don't play with our money. Basically, it says you're not allowed to, to take risky bets with government backing. Right. You have, you have to do it on your own. And that government backing is a real subsidy. You get higher credit ratings for the products that you sell with government backing because the creditors know, people on the other side of the transaction know, that there's, there's a government backstop to these things. Which all means we're on the hook for it. It ultimately means we're on the hook for it, but uh, I mean, I think there's there's a good faith argument to be made that we're probably on the hook for it, no matter what. You know, oh, right? If, yeah, of course, happens, I forgot about that. Th- these banks are all too big to fail. <laughs> anyway, the, the bigger issue is that this is an, this actually actively encourages banks to make these bets and makes them more profitable for them. Right. So, uh, regardless of of the prospect of a future bailout, this makes the riskiest parts of the bank's business more profitable, encourages them to do it, and that that's that's not the type of incentive that that financial reform advocates and frankly, just about any. Democrat of, of almost any stripe really wants to be placing on, on, on Wall Street. And if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And so when, when it became clear that this was going to be part of, of the bill, uh, it became a really, really big, big, big problem for, uh, for, for Harry Reid, who was trying to organize like, this, this bicameral, uh, you know, t- bipartisan talks between both chambers, uh, and then ultimately for Barack Obama, uh, who was who just wanted to fund the government and, and didn't want to get hung up on minor things like a central tenet of the systemic risk provisions of Dodd Frank. All right, so Nancy Pelosi, number one, saying this is horrible, it's blackmail, and number two, Elizabeth Warren was also a really vocal against this, even though she's in the Senate. You know, her chance to attack it is coming up, and the White House was after some drama on Thursday, was like, you know what? We like the bill. And the White House sent the chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, to cajole House Democrats on Thursday evening. And it worked. Yeah, it worked. Barack Obama got that sucker through. It was going to go down until the president sent his troops. I characterize this as Citigroup whipping a Democratic president and a Republican House speaker to help Wall Street. And here's the argument for Zach to address. They said, yeah, the swaps thing sucks, but we're not gutting Obamacare. We're not messing with our executive order on immigration to protect 4 million people from deportation. So why are we supposed to freak out about this when our big legacy-making stuff, our signature achievements, our biggest policies remain unscathed why are we going to fuss over one part of dodd frank and and i think the argument from progressives is why is why is dodd frank not one of those signature legacy making uh, achievements and and why why should something like a subsidy for wall street be part of a bill to fund to fund the government at at all and and i I think in particular for, for critics of this they, they they looked at this bill and there were a lot of things in it that were bad for Democrats, right? There was there's a provision that's that's attempting to to get rid of DC's you know legalization of, of marijuana. There are provisions that are restricting attempting to restrict access to abortion. There are there they, are provisions they to, cut the uh, food for babies program. Yes, the WIC program, right? Yeah, they cut it and they forced white potatoes to be allowed, which was something right. they couldn't get through regular order. Yeah, couldn't get in the farm I bill. Mean, we're not totally hung up on that. We're, I mean, we I, would be but, but, if it wasn't all this other maybe stuff. So, well, maybe well, here's, so. Here's the thing. Here's what I think yeah. is interesting about this because there's a ton of stuff in here for Democrats to just absolutely loathe. I mean, they cut Pell Grants. This is this is aid to low-income college students. And at least one Democrat said that was the reason for a no vote. 
Yeah. Right. There's uh, the there's the campaign finance nonsense. Right. Uh, but, which 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 let's let's be frank. These this this provision that would that would I think increase tenfold the amount of money people are allowed to donate to campaigns is money that uh, it's been set up so that politicians can have greater assistance in retiring their campaign debt. It is itself a bailout, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, the thing I keep coming back to is that we've just been through a midterm election. We're heading into a, a presidential election. Is what is of the moment right now? I think that probably we're still uh, we're still largely a country that feels the original bailout and the original financial crisis was an original sin. We've not recovered from. We, we're told we're in a recovery, but we don't feel it. Mm-hmm. A guy who had a good job in two thousand eight is mulling whether he's going to like stagger around an Amazon shipping warehouse picking products into a basket. It's not something people feel, and I think that they've. I think people still feel like there's tremendous loss. And then you go back and you see like both parties coming together to give Citibank and Jamie Dimon uh, th- this this gift so they can Citigroup. get back on their gravy tra- sorry, Citigroup. It's a, they're, they're uh, get back on their gravy train. Uh, and, and people were wondering, what about us? What about us? Jamie Dimon, who was calling members himself. Right. Do you think there aren't opposition researchers right now who are ready to like hang up Democrats on this vote? Oh, I think everybody's everybody who voted for this is about to get is about to get hammered in 2016 because Jamie. I mean, I, I think the the optics, the sheer political reality of Jamie Dimon, Barack Obama, and House Speaker John Boehner pushing for the same thing. Jamie Dimon, by the way, is the CEO of the world's largest bank or the the United States' largest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, he's not Citigroup lobbyists actually wrote the bill uh, that that had this controversial Wall Street provision in it. But it's not um, like he didn't. But, 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 but right, exactly. But <laughs> but you you could see Jamie Dimon put you know put, really putting the screws to, and, to members of Congress to get it through. And and here, here's here's the thing to me that 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 what here, here's what happened. There's there's tons of, of of shit in this bill that Democrats didn't want to swallow. They said you know but whatever that's part of compromise. We can't get everything we want. What we will not do we will plant a flag and say we are not willing to be perceived as the party that backs wall street and gives everybody else the shaft on these things if we're going to have to give everybody else the shaft on this stuff to compromise with republicans then maybe that's part of life and we don't live in a perfect world but we're not going to be the party of big business we're not going to be the party that subsidizes major corporations particularly wall street corporations that caused the 2008 financial crisis and have really i mean i think beltway pundits in general have missed the, the sort of shadow that the financial crisis has 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 left looming over american politics they were affected by it yeah i mean they and, literally we're not affected by the financial crisis right and and if you and if you look at the 2014 elections. I mean, Democrats will tell you, look, look at minimum wage, for instance. This is an issue where Republicans and Democrats could not be farther apart, right? right? Democrats are in favor of raising the minimum wage. Republicans are not. Minimum wage at local and state level is getting, you know, got, did great in 2014. Democrats got absolutely creamed. That means that they are totally decoupled from their 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 electoral right. sort of sort of state of being is decoupled from their their economic policy making so they really can't afford to be seen as taking sides with wall street against ordinary people and i think elizabeth warren gets that and and that's this is the cent, a sort of a central tenet of her uh you know of her her uh, political uh character her, her persona um but it's also Can important I to note that she was a little late to the table on this the, oh. the people who were really really whipping this hard at first were maxine waters who is the ranking member of the house financial services committee for democrats and sherrod brown who is about to become the ranking member of the the Senate Banking Committee, um, and and they were they were making a really big fuss about this after HuffPost published the story breaking that that it was oh right thing, yeah which was me who wrote that just to be clear oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Very good. We, we momentarily but, but then, forgot how awesome you were. But then <laughs> Elizabeth Warren uh, started making a big stink about it, and it became a big deal. And I, I think this really shows her influence over over the this, this sort of like economic conscience of the party. Well, in, here in that, that now that now if they really are going to suffer for backing Wall Street, that would you know if it's the way you say it, it would represent a change in the Democratic Party from what it has been doing for the past twenty years. When Bill Clinton said, I'm a new Democrat, mm-hmm. and they had this new Democrat coalition, which is essentially, I'm a Democrat, but I'm really nice to business. Barack right. Obama, people didn't notice this, but he met with the new Democratic caucus in 2009, and he said, and they, he told them, I am a new Democrat, too. Of course. Well, so it, it's, it, it's a total change, potentially. And if you talk to staffers uh, in in particularly on the House side, they will say, look, when, when there was foreclosure relief that was coming up, we were going to change the bankruptcy laws to make it easier for people to get foreclosure relief if, if they went through the horrible, personal, like, critical step of, of declaring bankruptcy, which does terrible things to your financial life. We'll give, you, we'll give you foreclosure relief if you do that. That bill was something Obama had promised Democrats when he was a senator. If, if, they, had, if, if, if they voted for the bailout when he was president, he would give them that. He did not individually whip members of Congress. He did not call people and say, hey, we need you to vote for this. It's really important for the state of our country. And yet last night, or I'm sorry, on Thursday night at least, uh, you, saw, you saw the White House making, making phone calls, sending the chief of staff to the Hill to get people to vote for a bill that subsidizes the riskiest Wall Street derivatives trading. Yeah, it's true. I have to say, credit to Elizabeth Warren, we also have to acknowledge that among uh, conservative reformers, there's also a similar amount of it getting on these issues, a certain amount of acknowledgement that there's uh, sort of shadows falling across the country and that some sort of economic populism is going to be the key to winning future elections. And I think that what, we, what we're looking at in 2016 is like a race to renewal, a race to some kind of new ideas. And I think the Republicans have started down that path. Democrats have too, but a lot depends on like what policies get signed, whose names are on the dotted line, and who ends up as candidates going forward. I also want to point out that the two most like derided provisions – in this Karamnibus, which we're talking about the the, mm-hmm. uh, the swaps push out and the campaign finance nonsense, and it, this is a push out of the swaps, the push, push out, out of the swaps. Yeah, sorry, sorry, the swap stuff you... and the campaign <laughs> finance stuff. Uh, these are provisions without. We don't know who put these in the bill. There's no one who's willing to actually stand up and say, "I believe we should do this." Yeah, because every uh, the person the person the, the person who said, "I'm going to put this in the bill," knows for a fact. That it's shameful that it's in the bill. And that's what a cromnibus is all about. It must pass, so it's a frenzy for lobbyists. You can cram anything you want in there. And members of Congress, I think they like it too because even though it you know it looks bad, honestly, they, they have no accountability because there are so many different things. Yeah. Like you say, well, why did you vote to push out the swaps push out? And any member of Congress can, who voted for it could just say, oh, I wasn't voting for that. I was voting to fund the government. Yeah. There's just no accountability to it at all. Citigroup is going to make some donations to some legislators uh, for their campaigns, and it'll get you closer well, to knowing who did that. Crom. I mean, I, I, think, I think all of that is, uh, is, is true to, to some extent, but it, it's also the case that, like, if, if you look at the amount of legislative activity that happened over the course of this year – it's almost zilch. Yeah, it's true. It is 
almost nothing that happened, right? And so essentially we are, we are, we are doing this, this sort of shoot the moon plan on, on, on legislating right now in Congress, whereas we'll do one thing and it's got to pass so everybody gets what they want. Uh, and, and, and realistically, people who, who backed the swaps push out stuff – they didn't know. I mean, there were Democrats. I mean, this was originally actually a bill introduced by a Democrat in the House, Jim Himes, Connecticut Democrat from, from hedge fund land. Um, these, these, these provisions. The guy who almost ended up in charge of the congressional committee. Who got passed over by Nancy Pelosi, actually, because he believes that he was perceived as being too close to Wall Street. I wonder why. Right. Be- because of this bill. I mean, so, so this, is, this is a major. Uh, here, here's the thing. Aside from all the legislative issues. The Democratic Party, if you go out in the street and ask Democrats in any part of the country, you know, how do you feel about same-sex marriage? How do you feel about immigration reform? Almost any issue, if they're a card-carrying Democrat, you've got like a 98% chance of knowing what their position is going to be. If you go out and you ask them, how do you feel about the party's relationship with Wall Street, that's an area where there's some real tension. Within the party, there's a big rift opening up about whether or not to be nice to Wall Street so you can get all this other stuff, or whether Wall Street's economic sort of centrality and, and the, the, the Wall Street first, uh, you know, women, children, and orphans last kind of policymaking um, is, is a real problem uh, for, for the Democratic Party. And I think you're seeing increasingly with this battle, you know, Obama ended up getting his policy. And and Wall Street got their policy, but Obama looks terrible. He looks like the guy who's who's in bed with Jamie Dimon and 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 John Boehner. Uh, Elizabeth Warren looks like the populist folk hero who stood up and kept this stuff from uh, and tried to tried to keep this from 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 hitting mainstream consumers. And I think that's where the party is going. I I think that that direction of the party ends up coming out of this fight a lot stronger, even though they they ended up losing and 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 Wall Street ended up getting subsidized. Oh, another thing in this bill that it you know it didn't precipitate a near shutdown was the the marijuana. Yeah, that's another. Well, yeah. Okay, so the background on this is that the D.C. in, in Washington D.C. voters it was it was it was not a D.C. council decision, right? It was actually a, wasn't it a voter referendum? Yes, and simultaneously the D.C. council you know they had decriminalized marijuana. Right. They were working on something to create a, a retail tax and regulate system, but a, an initiative put before the voters in, in November legalized small amounts of marijuana for people in the district for recreational use. So you could just walk around. You could have all the pot you want almost. Right. Uh, I mean, you need an absurd amount of pot to run afoul of the limit. Anyway, it passed with almost 70% of voters approving, but the city, because of a quirk in the Constitution is not in charge of itself, and Congress has the final say, and they can say, you're not allowed to spend money on this or that, if they feel like it. And so there was one of those writers in the bill saying district voters were not allowed to spend money to reduce penalties for a drug illegal under federal law. And if I remember correctly, the guy who was like most passionate about keeping Washington from enjoying marijuana is some, is some douchebag in Maryland... His name is Andy Harris. Andy, Andy Harris. Andy Harris. <laughs> so you say Andy, Andy Harris, Republican from. Uh, you, you say Andy Harris. I just hear douchebag. Andy Harris, Republican from Maryland, and he says it's all about the children. It's about protecting children because there are, you know, there's a couple yeah. of studies that say. Can I just say something. that, like in 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 past in past instances of of Congress critters using DC as their you know social experimentation petri dish, 
they may say, oh, it's for the children, but years go by, no one ever comes back to check on the children, how they're doing. They don't <laughs> no. give a shit. The history, the history, and this is particularly bad given the criminal justice history with marijuana and other you know, small possession violations of, uh, of, you know, of other drugs. I mean, the, the history of, of uh, the congressional rule over D.C. has been profoundly racist. Just profoundly racist. You basically have white Southerners in the Capitol uh, passing laws over a predominantly black city um, w- without giving them access to any of the, the benefits of, of, of their own government. This, this is one reason why uh, I think to a lot, of, a lot of white people in other parts of the country, it's very perplexing that Marion Barry was so popular a figure here, even after he was convicted for, uh, you know, for, for, for the crack stuff. Um, Marion Barry was, was like the first mayor from D.C. I mean, he was instrumental in securing home rule, yeah. which, which allowed, at le- you know, even though they don't have control over the budget, Congress still has control over that. At least the city had its own electoral infrastructure in place. Um, and, and when you do something like this with marijuana, I think it's it, particularly when you're talking about white Republicans uh, in, in an electorate, which nationally Republicans are increasingly the party of, of white men. Um, doing stuff like this really plays to a, a pretty nasty racial history in the politics of Washington. So the city is less black than it has been in decades. At this time, it's like 50-50. But anyway, they, you know, marijuana was on the ballot in states, and there was no effort to attack those no, initiatives. Not at all. Only the districts. But uh, Andy Harris is not really a senior Republican or a leadership figure, and Hal Rogers, the Appropriations Committee chairman in the House, has been really tepid in his defense of keeping this in the bill. And you get the impression Republicans don't really want to have this fight, but they Took a, you know they had their pea shooter. They the, the district was a small target, and they could do it without too much blowback. <laughs> and I think that's mostly turned out to be true. But uh, this is a huge but, problem for Republicans, right? I mean, when they when they go around screaming about states' rights whenever uh, you know they have the opportunity to disenfranchise black voters or something, uh, th- then then to go and talk about DC's uh, marijuana laws as being something that should be subject to congressional well, the, review. Well, the states' yeah. rights argument has never worked in all it's the decades they've been DC's manipulating uh, their role over DC. I think. They're, it's they're more. It's always vulnerable. been selectively applied. Do you think if New York State, like by an act of legislation, like legalized abortion on their own and it made it free and clear of judicial wranglings, that there wouldn't be congressional Republicans from places outside New York trying to attack that in some way, shape, or form? Of course, you know the whole like, oh, I'm a federalist. It kind of falls apart as soon mm-hmm. as you get a burn your ass about something some state did. But the, it's the drug war, though, where, where there, where people like Rand Paul and Justin Amash are saying, "What you know, it's pretty much a failure." That I think Republicans will be uncomfortable in the mm-hmm. future if DC officials uh, fight this as aggressively as it seems like they're willing to do. It would put Republican leaders in the House in the position of having to affirmatively thwart the local law. Yeah, like it does. It is. Is it's not. It's a question over whether it automatically becomes legal. Uh, if the if it's sent to congressional review, do they kill it without doing anything, or do they actually have to file a lawsuit? So, so there's there is something that the DC government can do to stop the language, or at least try to stop the well, language that was passed. It's a confusing situation at this time because the, it was written uh, in a way where they they left out a couple words, and this may have actually been the handiwork of Democratic staffers just trying to kneecap when essentially they were giving up legalization in D.C. 
And people like Eleanor Holmes Norton and now Nancy Pelosi are saying, we think the way, the way this law is written, D.C. can go ahead. So D.C. could press the issue and force senior Republican leaders to, to, to make a stand about it because Andy Harris can't do it by himself. And that's where it'll be a question of. And he was always really trying to the... duck into the chromnibus to do this. But this sounds a little bit familiar yeah. to me, right? We're, we're talking about here. I mean, surely Republicans would just say, "Oh, but the clear congressional intent of this is obvious," and you Democrats are just trying to get us on a typo. What does that sound like? It sounds like Obamacare. Yeah, the, it's, the, it's Obamacare hilariously ruling. parallel yeah. to the argument over established by a state in the Obamacare and the claim by conservative legal scholars that a whole bunch of congressional Democrats had no intention of providing health insurance to poor people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Can I say something more broadly about uh, – this is just an observation I've always made – is that is that uh, Congress has always kind of imposed a certain amount of control on Washington. And, like, there are, two, there are two things that I've noticed. First of all, they consistently thwart Washington's design, the District of Columbia's designs, to be properly represented in Congress. So, so in Washington, you frequently hear people make the taxation without representation right. argument. On the other hand, Republicans in Congress have insisted – insisted that every resident of the District of Columbia have free access to a gun. And I have to say, as autocratic regimes go, this is pretty dumb. I mean, there are people, (laughs) there are are oppressed people all over the world who wish that the autocrats in charge of their lives would be like, but have a gun. Because there's 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 a certain amount of logic that I'm waiting for residents in the District of Columbia to sort of catch on to. <laughs> right. We won't give you a voting seat in the House of Representatives or the United States Senate, but, take but we a want weapon. you all to have a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's, it's like really insane. And, and we have a pretty insane American political system today. I think this week proved that. The Cromnibus. Crom! 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 Hey, wait a minute. Before we go, uh, Arthur, about a week ago, um, you predicted about a 50-50 chance of a government shutdown, and then Jason and I said that that was boring, and we yeah, bullied we insisted. you into getting to 80%. Were you right? Yes, of course, because I still said there was a 20% chance of no shutdown. Thanks, guys. That's how statistics work. Grom. Grom. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta, Chris Gentleviso, and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we had our usual folks, Huffington Post senior politics reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney, along with Huffington Post national security reporter Ali Watkins. So That Happened is now available on iTunes. Please check us out in the iTunes store for the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. We miss you already. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.